You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by continuing to examine biblical anthropology. Dr. Spencer, last time we discussed the doctrine of total depravity, which says that every aspect of our being is affected by sin. And as a result, man is not able to repent and believe in Christ until and unless God regenerates him, that is, causes him to be born again. At the end of the session, I asked the question that many people have raised, namely, if man is utterly incapable of obeying God's command to repent and believe, how then can it be fair for God to condemn an unbeliever for not doing so? How would you answer that question? Well, let me begin by giving God's answer to the question, and then we can discuss it further. Paul deals with this question in chapter 9 of the book of Romans. He begins by citing Old Testament passages that present the doctrine of election. In other words, that God sovereignly and unconditionally chooses whom to save. Now, by calling this election unconditional, you mean that it's not based on anything man does. That's right. This doctrine is represented by the letter U in the acrostic tulip. But getting back to our passage in Romans 9 verse 18, Paul draws a conclusion from these Old Testament verses and writes, quote, Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden, unquote. And then in verse 19, he anticipates essentially the same question you asked in response to this conclusion. He says, quote, One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Unquote. And finally, in verse 20, we read his answer, which is really God's answer since Paul wrote as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we read, quote, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? I must say that God's answer would seem to argue in favor of not discussing this further. He asserts his sovereignty and basically says that we're not in a position to ask the question. I agree. In fact, John Murray describes this answer as being an appeal to the reverential silence which the majesty of God demands of us. We don't want to probe beyond our proper limits. There is a mystery in the doctrine of election that goes beyond what we're able to understand, and we need to be careful or we can get into territory that man should avoid altogether or risk being impudent. Yeah, we certainly want to avoid that. We should have proper respect and reverence for God at all times and keep the creator-creature distinction in mind. Absolutely. And yet there's more that we can properly and biblically say about this question. And it is a question that is deeply troubling to many, which is why the Apostle Paul anticipates it, and then he himself goes on to say a little more. But we must pay careful attention to the fact that God is putting us in our place first— he is reminding us that we have no business questioning his goodness. Yeah, and that reminds me of Job. Oh, it certainly does. In his excellent commentary on the book of Romans, P.G. Matthew noted that, quote, Job had many questions for God, but when God questioned him, Job closed his mouth, unquote. And in Job 42, verses 3 through 6, we read that Job replied to God, quote, You asked, Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. 
You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Yeah, that's the only response possible if we truly see God and ourselves. And we must not miss the point of Paul's rhetorical question in Romans 9.20, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? We have no right to question God about how he governs his creation. If he chooses to give us an explanation, that's entirely by grace. He doesn't owe us an answer. But God did graciously give us some more information about his purposes in election. Just as God dealt with Job's question by questioning him, so Paul responds to this question about God's fairness by asking questions in return. We just dealt with the first of them, Who are you, O man? which points out that we have no right to talk back to God. And the second question was also in verse 20, Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? And the answer is, again, no. The creature shall not say to the Creator, Why did you make me like this? In context, that question clearly has an accusatory tone. It's saying, in essence, that God should have made me some other way. Yeah, that's right. Paul is pointing out how inappropriate it is for us to question God, and he means to humble and silence us. And he goes on in verse 21 to ask, Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? The same metaphor about a potter and the clay is used in the Old Testament as well. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9, we read, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? That's exactly the same idea. These three questions were meant to put us in our place. Let me quote from P.G. Matthew's commentary again. He wrote, quote, Mind your place. You are down here. God is up there. God is all transcendent. God is our creator. We are his creatures, and we must never forget the creator-creature distinction. We exist and consist in him, so think correctly. Pride goes before a fall. God is not our equal. No man has a right to bring God to trial, but God has every right to bring us to trial and cast us into hell. Nothing could be more obvious than the fact that God is not our equal. So it's only reasonable that we keep that fact in mind at all times. Yeah, that fact causes us to face reality. We have no business questioning the fairness of God. But in a very real sense, anyone who goes to hell chooses to go to hell. Now, how can you say that? Well, we noted in session 104 that eternal death or hell includes eternal separation from the blessings or presence of God. But let me quote from P.G. Matthew again. He says, quote, Listen to the arguments of the great theologian Jonathan Edwards. One, that if God should forever cast you off, it would be agreeable to your treatment of him. Two, if you should forever be cast off by God, it would be agreeable to your treatment of Jesus Christ. Three, if God should forever cast you off and destroy you, it would be agreeable to your treatment of others. Four, if God should eternally cast you off, it would be agreeable to your own behavior towards yourself. And Matthew adds a fifth point, 
If God should eternally cast you off, it would be agreeable to your treatment of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's very good. If people reject the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, they should not be surprised when God rejects them. Well, in fact, that's exactly what their actions show they really want. And we never treat others the way we should either, which shows our contempt for God, since they are also made in His image. And when he speaks about our treatment of ourselves, he's reminding us that we don't have the right to abuse our own bodies by using drugs or overeating or sexual immorality or any of a number of ways in which people do so. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. He made us. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And the bottom line is that we are all sinful, rebellious creatures. God does not treat anyone unjustly. He treats every individual with either perfect justice or mercy. And we should not want to be treated with justice if we have any inkling at all of the many ways in which we have violated God's just laws and offended His holy character. No, any rational person will desire mercy. But now, with all of that in mind, let's take a look at the final question Paul asks in Romans 9. In verses 22 to 24, he wrote, What if God choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? That's a very difficult passage, not difficult to understand, but difficult for people to accept. I think you're right about that. Paul tells us that God has prepared some people for destruction for the purpose of manifesting his power and wrath and also to make the riches of his glory manifest to the objects of his mercy. In other words, to those whom he chose to save. We've said a number of times that the Bible clearly teaches that God's purpose in creation is the manifestation of his own glory. And that includes showing his holiness and justice, as well as his mercy and love. People may not like that, but it's the truth. But of course, an unbeliever is not going to accept that answer. No, I'm quite sure they won't. I know I didn't. This question of God's fairness was very disturbing to me before God graciously granted me a new heart. And as we discussed last time, that is what new birth is. It is God granting an individual a new heart. Or you could say, a new spirit. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 tells us that, quote, The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned, unquote. But whatever terminology you use, the point is that God changes our fundamental nature, which affects every aspect of our being. He regenerates us. He gives us a new mind, a new will, a new set of affections. We are not made perfect, but we are changed in the very core of our being. And that change is just as pervasive as the depravity it begins to destroy. Why do you say that it begins to destroy our depravity? Well, in his infinite wisdom, God has chosen to conform his people to the image of Christ through a process. The process begins with new birth, which issues forth in repentance and faith, which then result in justification. But repentance and faith are not the only fruit that comes from this new birth. It also manifests itself in every aspect of our behavior. 
As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And yet, the change is not complete. We are not yet perfect. Yeah, that fact is abundantly obvious when we look at ourselves and others. It certainly is. If we have been born again and have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, then we are justified in God's sight. And yet, we are still sinners as well. Theologians have a Latin phrase they use for this condition. Yeah, well, of course they do. They're almost as bad as medical doctors in liking Latin. I suppose that's true. In any event, Martin Luther stated that believers are simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously just and sinner. We are justified in God's sight by our union with Christ, as we discussed last session, and yet we are still sinners. When God regenerates a person, he changes every aspect of the person's being. The effects of regeneration are just as pervasive as the sinful nature. But just as our sinful nature did not make us as bad as we could possibly be, so regeneration does not make us as good as we can possibly be. It does not perfect us. It does not remove sin completely. It simply begins the process. We are simultaneously just and sinner. Which expresses the idea that a Christian is a mixture. We have a desire and an ability to obey God, but we still have sin residing in us as well. There's a war going on between our old and new natures. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches us. Let's take a brief look at one passage that deals with this fact. In Colossians 3, verses 5 through 10, Paul commands us, quote, "...put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature." sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. That passage has an interesting mix of statements in the past tense, like, you have taken off your old self, and commands in the present tense, like, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And that's why it's a great illustration of the inner conflict that exists in every true believer. If we've been born again, there is a very real and pervasive change that has occurred— John Murray calls this change, which is produced in our nature by regeneration, definitive sanctification. Which is what the Bible is referring to when it speaks in the past tense about believers having been sanctified. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul told the believers in Corinth, You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Exactly. It's also what is being referred to in the passage we're looking at in Colossians when it says that we used to walk in these ways and that we have taken off our old self. But in addition to this definitive sanctification, there is also progressive sanctification, which is indicated, for example, by the command to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. We still have work to do. When we are born again, there is a dramatic and pervasive change in our nature, but it isn't complete. God has ordained that we struggle against sin, 
walking in faith until he calls us home. At that time, he will perfect our spirits, as we're told in Hebrews 12, verse 23. Now that is something to look forward to. It certainly is. But let's get back to the point you made that an unbeliever is not going to accept the answer given in Romans 9. I have a couple of things to say about that. First, whether or not an unbeliever will accept the truth has no bearing on whether it is the truth. Remember, an unbeliever also won't accept the most basic truth that God exists and has revealed himself in his word. What's the second thing you wanted to say about it? That there is no reason to really get into this question with an unbeliever unless he or she brings it up. While it's true that an unbeliever is totally depraved, dead and trespasses and sins, and cannot repent and believe unless God first regenerates him, it is equally true, as Paul wrote in Romans 10 verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is what we should be saying to unbelievers. Share the gospel. Answer their questions to the best of your ability. Pray for their salvation. But don't worry about how to reconcile God's sovereign election with their personal liberty. That question doesn't affect what they must do to be saved. Never once in the New Testament do we see someone asking, what must I do to be saved, and then being told to be born again. They are always told to repent and believe. I think that's good advice for evangelism, and I personally find God's sovereign election to be a very comforting doctrine. I must do my job to evangelize, but no one is going to perish because I didn't do my job well enough. If God has chosen someone for salvation, then they are going to be saved. I agree. That's a great encouragement. It is our business to live for God's glory and to share His glorious gospel. It is God's business to save sinners. And with that, I think we're out of time for today. So let me remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org, and we'll answer as best we can. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media. And I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine biblical anthropology, and we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.